the, the, the main challenge we face now with recharge is that the only water that we're not already recharging either naturally or through managed aquifer recharge are these flood peaks that we see during extreme rainfall events like the one we had in early January, which also creates a large snowpack that may or may not melt off quickly um, and provides extra water that we could recharge. So fundamentally, the challenge is that the, the main bulk of water that's uncaptured is water that comes very fast and needs to would need to be recharged very quickly. So we either need to feed find sites that can take a lot of that can recharge a lot of water in a short period of time or we find a lot of places to recharge a little bit of water and in the central valley the agricultural landscape is that place where we have a lot of acreage where we where we could do some recharge and in common you know you know across that larger landscape we could put away a lot of water in a short period of time Welcome to Seen and Heard. My name is Allison Tristo, and I'm the Community Field Representative at Western United Dairies. Today we have Dr. Thomas Harder coming on the podcast. He's a cooperative extension groundwater hydrologist and a professor at UC Davis, as well as Paul Souza, Woods Director of Environmental Services. They're going to be talking about Sigma as well as hydrology, so let's go ahead and get into it. Pacific Gas and Electric is here to remind you that signs keep you safe. Sections of our natural gas transmission pipeline travel underground and beneath agricultural land. For the safety of you, your family, and your employees, pipeline markers are placed to indicate the approximate location of the pipe as a reminder to use extra care. Removing a pipeline marker creates a serious safety hazard. To have additional markers placed or report damaged or missing markers, please call your PG&E account manager or our Agricultural Customer Service Center at 877-311-3276. To learn more, visit www.pge.com slash agsafety. Remember, signs keep you safe. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Hi, folks. It was a bit of a mixed week in our dairy markets. Uh, the Class 4 market saw some gains. Uh, thankfully, after a couple bad weeks, we saw butter gain three and three quarters of a cent, back up to 2.41 and a quarter. Nonfat gained two cents for the week, back up to 126.50. Over on the class three side, though, the spot markets and cheese actually lost a little for the week. Um, blocks not too much, just down a quarter cent to 186.25. Barrels uh, did lose five and a half cents to 157.50. So quite a divergence between barrels and blocks right now. I will say, though, uh, milk futures staged a recovery despite not as much movement in the spot markets. 
We saw the Q3 class three futures uh, climb back up to 1989. That was a 32 cent gain for the week. And class four back up to 2019, um, a 59 cent gain for the week. The rally appeared to be driven by a combination of some value buying, probably on the end user front, um, needing to get some coverage on. Probably a bit of a short covering rally as well, um, people getting out of positions. We also saw a little less aggressive selling out of Europe, thankfully, after two weeks of them um, offering quite lower prices. They backed off a bit this week, and there was a little glimmer of hope or optimism around China. They were back at the global dairy trade event um, with a little bit more purchasing power for a couple auctions in a row now. Um, I would say, though, that none of those factors are convincingly concrete at this juncture. Uh, so I would keep a close eye on markets. We do know there's still a lot of milk in the Midwest. Uh, USDA continues to report spot milk moving for 6 to $10 under class three right now. So cheese manufacturers are certainly getting as much milk as, as they want. So maybe take a look at this rally. If you haven't done anything to protect your milk price, um, at least consider a milk price floor. Uh, we are watching slaughter rates with some interest, definitely some tighter dairy margins. We've seen an uptick um, in dairy slaughter rates over the four weeks. Ending January 28th, the choline was about 8% above last year. We're running about 3% 3, 3 ahead of the five-year average. Next week is pretty quiet in terms of dairy reports. I do hope to see you all at the Ag Show. Thank you. Well, hello, Dr. Harder. Thanks for coming on to Seen and Heard. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Allison and Paul. Yes, today we have uh, Paul on with us as well. He is going to assist me in asking Dr. Harder some questions. So let's go ahead and start by you telling us about your background, Dr. Harder, uh, in hydrology and how you got into the subject. Oh, that's a great question and maybe a longer story than you want to hear. So hydrology, I, I, it's the science of water, right? Um, and uh, so I'm a, I'm a water science, water scientist, and it wasn't something that I had envisioned I'd be doing um, for the rest of my life. I had, I didn't know what I wanted to do out of high school um, and mandatory service. Being in Germany, we had mandatory service at the time, but I stumbled, literally stumbled into hydrology when I was talking to a young professor from a local university and. He told me that they're doing hydrology and I said, I really don't want to know about hydrology because I don't see myself walking around in other people's wastewater. And he told me about hydrology and I've been a hydrologist ever since. So something, something very different from what I had expected. And the funny thing is when I first got this job as a cooperative extension professor here at University of California, Davis, my office um, was initially for the first five years out of the Kearney Ag Center um, near Fresno. And one of the first projects that I got involved in was with Marsha Campbell Matthews and, uh, from Stanislaus County. She was a farm, forage farm advisor there doing a lot of work on dairies. She called me up and she said, hey, I talked to an engineer from the state water board and they have a monitoring network on five dairies and they're looking for somebody to take over. And I said, well, let's talk about it. And six months later, I found myself on a dairy near um, Hillmar and we were sampling um, water 
irrigation water that was being poured onto a cornfield. Um, um, and I was walking through that field. Half of it was manure water from a lagoon and half of it was fresh irrigation water. And I was thinking to myself, dang it, here I am walking through wastewater <laughs> as a hydrologist. But I had so much fun with it. Um, we actually, that, so that, that was a project that stayed with me uh, throughout my career. Um, um, that was in the mid nineties. Um, as Paul knows, Marsha Campbell Matthews and Raleigh Meyer and myself, we did a lot of work at the time in the late nineties, early two thousands, understanding nitrate uh, leaching from dairies and that project then expanded into other things. But that's how I came to hydrology. I, I am very interested in sort of the connections between um, nature and people. I'm very interested in landscape settings and understanding processes in the landscape. Yeah, I've worked with Thomas for a long time. I mean, going back to you know those early days, uh, I worked for UC Cooperative Extension in Stanislaus County with Marsha Campbell Matthews and actually went out to that dairy in Hillmar uh, where you guys were doing some of that work. So um, yeah, I've known Thomas for a long, long time um, and it's, it's, you're a great resource um, and, and really have develop some of these things that we're still continuing to work on today. Uh, you were there at the beginning and helping to put that together. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act or SIGMA as it's known. Um, and I know that passed in 2014, uh, but I was thinking if you could go into how did we get into this? Why did that get passed? I know it was passed during a drought. Uh, what was the need for that? What problem was it trying to solve? Um, let's start with that kind of that background of how we got into this issue uh, that we're now dealing with and is having major impacts. Uh, but where did it come from? Where did it start? Yeah, well, I think it started over 100 years ago. It actually started more than 100 years earlier. Um, in, in the 1914, um, Act that created the predecessor to the State Water Board, uh, the Water Rights Commission. Um, there was in the initial draft of that 1914 Act, which was drafted in 1913, the initial intent was actually to have that commission give out water rights not only to surface water diverters, but also to groundwater pumpers. And it was because of lobbying from the San Joaquin Valley to the legislature at the time that groundwater ended up not being included in that act. And we've struggled with what to do with groundwater ever since then, because absent of an actual law that governs the distribution of groundwater resources, it was always up to the courts to make that decisions. And the courts very early on um, 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 were building on a doctrine that we call the um, correlative rights doctrine which you can think of most easily as a riparian rights doctrine. So when people mostly from Southern California, um, Southern California um, cities really, that would go to court over groundwater issues, courts always divided up water, basically the way they divided up um, surface water under riparian rights doctrine. They said overlying owners of groundwater, um, they shared that resource and courts were more specific than that. They always said the part that they share is the renewable part. So the part that on average gets recharged into the aquifer is shared by the overlying owners. And, and that has been sort of the backstop to a lot of the overdraft along the coast and in urban areas for the last hundred years. 
But in the Central Valley, as, as many of us um, have experienced, we rely on a very rich um, aquifer system that has a lot of groundwater and we've been able to use that resource and overuse that resource in some places for most of the last hundred years. Um, uh, with all of the detrimental consequences of that, which include, you know, it costs more and more to pump water out of the ground. Um, shallow wells go dry and have to be um, um, either uh, drilled deeper or a whole new well has to be drilled, which has mostly impacted domestic well owners. Um, then you have, um, as the water level goes slower, there are less and less strata, aquifer strata that we can tap into, and to the degree that there is naturally occurring contaminants throughout this aquifer system, there are less and less choices of good water as we go deeper. So that's an, that's an issue. Um, with, with the um, aquifer being built out of not just sands and gravels, but also interbedded clays, there is the issue of land subsidence, which we can talk about, um, which causes major infrastructure issues. Um, and then with lowering water tables, we've really lost that connection between surface water and groundwater. So there's all these unintended consequences of overusing the groundwater storage system, so to speak, and drawing down that groundwater storage. Um, and the, the pressure, the political pressure has increased uh, tremendously and, and throughout the last hundred years. And one of the responses in the middle of the 20th century was to build more reservoirs, which we did. We built the state water project. Um, and um, when that wasn't enough, you know, come the 1977 drought, um, the, there, was, there was a big push in the 1977 drought to take another look at groundwater. And then Governor Jerry Brown um, created a commission that would do that. And ever since then, anytime it got dry, people looked at that and said, don't we need to do something about actually managing groundwater proactively rather than reactively um, by going to court? And, uh, and then there was a sequence of, of actions in the legislature with each drought in 1992. During that late 80s, early 90s drought, we created what's called AB 3030 that suggested to local agencies to do groundwater management plans. Um, in the early 2000s with the 2001 drought, that, that legislation got changed to where the state said, well, if you want money from us for, state, for water projects, you have to have a groundwater management plan. Um, and it was amended to actually have some specific elements, monitoring elements and planning elements. But ultimately, most of these groundwater management plans were plans to plan another plan um, and not really a plan to implement anything. And when um, Governor Jerry Brown became governor for the second time in 2010, um, there was he was a very experienced governor with respect to water policy. I imagine he knew that um, if he was to be governor for eight years, there was a very high likelihood he would see at least one drought and he ended up seeing a very, very big drought. And so early on in that 2012, 2016 drought, he invited stakeholders in 2013 and said, you know, by next spring, let's look at groundwater legislation and let's, and, and let's have proposals on the table. We wanna do groundwater legislation. And that really kicked it off. Um, um, and so with the depth of the drought and the intensity of that drought, 
um, everybody saw that there was a need to manage groundwater differently from how we had managed it. I think a lot of um, especially smaller farmers were highly impacted by the drought, lost their wells, had to drill deeper wells. The cost of drilling became uh, became high. The cost of pumping became high and all of these other consequences that I mentioned um, just were exacerbated. And so I think between the fact that the consequences of the overpumping became more and more clear, having a governor that was very um, experienced in water policy um, and, having, and having farming being impacted by the drought in ways that perhaps were much stronger than before, all kind of put it together to have that 2014 Sustainable Groundwater Management Act come together. Yeah. It certainly didn't come out of nowhere. There were, there were efforts over and over again in every drought, but I think it all came together um, to pass the legislature in 2014 because of the severity of that drought. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, you know, nothing like a good crisis uh, to make things happen, but there were a lot of other things that came together, the, the governor um, and other things that came together to make that happen at that time then. I think an important piece was actually the fact that the Association of California Water Agencies, which is a very large political player in the water policy landscape of California, in 2009 um, uh, developed its own groundwater management blueprint. And, and that kind of set the foundation for a lot of the ideas that are implemented in the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Um, the, the intention of that blueprint was not to create legislation, but it certainly paved the way toward that legislation. And, and it created attention among, among many of the stakeholders that hadn't really thought about groundwater before. Yeah. You kind of talked a little bit uh, about this, but I wanted to get a little more into it. Uh, the regional differences of how Sigma affects um, you know, groundwater users in different parts of the states. California is a very large and diverse state with a lot of rainfall in the north, deserts in the south, uh, and everything in between mountains. And um, so it's Sigma statewide, but it has uh, different implications for different areas. You know, different water rights to surface water. Some have good surface water rights, some places have none. Uh, again, you have different uh, rainfalls. Uh, are you catching rain, you know, runoff from mountains or not? Uh, can you get a little bit into, um, you know, those differences and, um, you know, how it's impacting different areas differently? Yeah. And may maybe before I do that, just just say, you know, what Sigma is really about or what Sigma says that, that wasn't out there before. What Sigma did was it kind of set, it set the rules for, for groundwater management absent of somebody going to court and having courts decide you know, how water, groundwater is being divided up. And what, I, what, what I see Sigma doing is it's really built on two pillars. One pillar is that groundwater has to be managed locally and a lot of these detailed decisions on how we allocate groundwater and how we manage groundwater are done by local agencies rather than by the state. It's done under state supervision for sure, but a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions are going to be made at the local level. So that was one important pillar of, of Sigma and that is different from how other states, um, how other states manage their groundwater. The other big pillar of Sigma was that it it, it set as a vision for groundwater management as an, as an ultimate goal for groundwater management, sustainability as the ultimate goal. And sustainability was defined as the absence of undesirable results. And in, in the legislation, these undesirable results were defined as what 
many refer to as the six deadly sins, which is you can't you can't have overdraft um, and a degradation of the storage. You can't have water quality degradation. You can't have land subsidence. Um, you can't have seawater continued seawater intrusion, and you can't have continued impacts um, on surface water and groundwater dependent ecosystems. So that really sort of sets the overall measure, and it's different. It's not. It's not very different from many of the other states. Um, some states choose, like Texas, to allow for a planned depletion of their aquifer systems. California clearly, as a policy said, we do not want to deplete our groundwater aquifers. That would not be consistent with how courts have allocated groundwater resources in the past. We need to be sustainable for the long run to, to continue to support our economies. Um, and so, as you said, um, there are, with these, with these six deadly sins, different regions will be impacted in different ways. Um, areas that have a lot of surface water and, and rely on groundwater only and drought um, are going to be less impacted than areas that use groundwater exclusively um, because the areas that have surface water, at least in the average and, and wet years, they have something to irrigate with, whereas areas that rely on groundwater, especially in the southern half of the state, southern, central, southern and central half of the state, to the degree that we have to cut back on, on the overuse of that groundwater, um, that's going to have a major impact on, ground, on those groundwater pumpers. In the northern part of the state where we haven't seen the large amounts of overdraft um, that we've seen in, in, uh, in the southern part of the Central Valley, sort of from Merced on south mostly, but also in parts around uh, south of Sacramento, um, so the areas north of there hadn't seen these large overdraft issues. There, the focus is probably going to be more on some of the local overdraft issues and on maintaining the connectivity that we still have in Northern California between groundwater and streams and ground between groundwater and groundwater dependent ecosystems. Um, and that's going to come to bear, especially with the fact that we're living in a now 20 year mega drought, as some people have called it. And that has impacted not just the southern half of the state, that has had major, major impact as well on the northern half of the state and, and is stressing that connection between groundwater and surface water. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing that with, you know, dairies are located throughout the state and uh, in certain areas, um, they're more concerned um, because of they're in those areas that are more impacted. And actually there is a recent report uh, that came out, an economic report uh, that we expect to see a cumulative 10% decrease in the dairy herd in California by 2040 as a result of Sigma. So uh, a big impact to farming in general, to the dairy industry, uh, but also to cities uh, and everybody that uses water. Right. You, you talked about the local um, you know, control and those local agencies had to uh, write uh, groundwater sustainability plans um, to talk about how they were gonna manage their local area. Uh, can you talk about key elements about, so a lot of those have been written and submitted, all of them actually. Um, and so we have an idea about you know, the strategies and how people were moving forward with uh, implementing Sigma for their local regions. Um, you have any thoughts on those and, and how those agencies have tried to be in compliance while minimizing the impacts of their local uh, areas? Yeah. 
So I, I, it, these plans, they're they're very comprehensive, and they kind of they they set up they set out a whole bunch of of different things. But I like to bring it down to four or five elements. One element of this plan is to just kind of capture what we know and and bring out bring in all of the the science and the technology that that's already in place, the science about you know groundwater resources, about surface water resources, putting together the water budget in a in a rigorous way, understanding how much water is actually available, how much groundwater is available, how much groundwater recharge happens, understanding how uh, dry years are different from wet years, understanding long-term trends. Um, but also on um, sort of outlining how we know all this, the monitoring systems that have been in place, the studies that have been undertaken. So that's one element, sort of the, the whole science technology part um, and sort of and that provides the found, foundational knowledge for those that have to make a decision on how to, you know, how to manage groundwater and having that knowledge together in one place is part of that plan. So that's that's sort of what I would call element number one. Element number two is the governance of these local of these local um, agencies and the stakeholder engagement. So the, the, how then that information is communicated to the decision makers and how different stakeholders are engaged in the decision making process. That is another another really important element of this groundwater sustainability plan. So the, the, the whole piece of communication, governance, stakeholder engagement, um, that's that's what I would call the second element. And and so the first element sort of informs this, the second part, it informs the stakeholders and decision makers. And then they have to, in, with that information, they have to sort of define what I would call um, the speed limit or, or or you know what cons what's considered to be a healthy aquifer system. So under these what we now call the sustainability indicators, these six sustainability indicators: water levels, groundwater storage, water quality, seawater intrusion, um, land subsidence, and groundwater surface water connectivity, including groundwater dependent ecosystems. For each of these six indicators. The stakeholders were asked to identify, you know, where where are we, um, and and how do we measure the health of each of these six? So for water levels, the easy way to do it is you measure water levels in, across a network of of um, specific monitoring wells that are that are actually called out in the plan, and then you ask the question, what are undesirable results in the future? Where 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 is that water level where we then see undesirable results? So identifying these undesirable conditions um, and then identifying at what water levels they occur, that was the process that these agencies went through and that's identified and all spelled out in these groundwater sustainability plans. And so in so many ways, what these groundwater sustainability plans then have is they have metrics or, or a ruler or a speedometer for each of these six indicators and then on that ruler or on that speedometer, they say, we want to be in this range, what's called the measurable objective in these groundwater sustainability plans, or what I would call the operating range, the ideal operating range. We want to be with our water levels in this range or with our water quality, we want to be in this particular range. But when we get below a certain threshold, um, then we would be 
seeing undesirable results. And so that threshold is identified and between that th threshold that nobody wants to go below and what's the ideal operating range, there would be triggers that as we get closer to that threshold, we start you know, cranking up how we manage our groundwater system. Um, and so identifying these metrics, the monitoring system that's connected to these metrics and where we have these triggers and thresholds and where we have our ideal operating range, that's the third part of this plan. And then the, the, the fourth part of the plan is what do we do when? Um, so what, you know, um, and, and what, what we do is falls in sort of two realms. One is we can enhance the amount of groundwater recharge um, to, allow, to, to allow for some of the pumping that we've done to continue, um, or we reduce the demand on groundwater. So either doing more recharge or reducing groundwater pumping to the degree that we're starting to kind of get to those, to those thresholds that we don't want to exceed. Um, and so in the plan then, there are specific projects um, and programs called out for um, that would be put in place if water levels were to continue to decline or if the groundwater surface water um, connectivity would be continually uh, continue to degrade or if, um, if seawater intrusion would continue um, to occur. There are these management practices that fall in place. And in the southern part of the Central Valley, the focus has been on increasing the amount of recharge, um, but also understanding that historically we've overdrafted that aquifer system and that there have to be about 2 million acre feet of reduction in the usage of that of that groundwater aquifer. The, the average overdraft on, on the Central Valley aquifer system in the San Joaquin Valley and Tulare Lake Basin was on the order of two million acre feet, even before we had this mega drought. And so addressing that shortage by a combination of reduced pumping and more recharge is kind of the key, the, that sort of the key um, project, overall project that we're looking at in the southern part, at least, of, up south of the Delta in the Central Valley. So, yeah, sounds like a whole lot went into those groundwater sustainability plans. Um, there was a lot of work, a lot of uh, engineering and, and thought uh, put into those to address uh, the different areas and the different problems. And you kind of got to, um, you know, groundwater recharge and the balance between recharge and what's being extracted. Um, I kind of think of this as like a checking account. Um, and it was being overdrawn. And so you, you, getting into a little bit more on recharge, uh, what can farmers do um, individually and as groups, maybe through their Sigma group, maybe through you know, a local group of um, landowners uh, to minimize these impacts? Um, so there's, there's a certain amount that has to be cut back, as you mentioned, uh, but there, you can make changes to that locally depending on how you do management. And so um, efficient irrigation systems, subsurface drips, um, you know, we've seen these um, coming in uh, in the dairy industry um, to try to utilize the water that we have more efficiently uh, along with groundwater recharge. Can you get into that a little bit about what can be done, you know, individually on a farm and more regionally with uh, folks working together to try to minimize those impacts, try to minimize the economic impacts? Yeah. Yeah, let me try. There's a lot of aspects to this. 
um, fundamentally, when we bring in from a supply perspective, when we bring in surface water from the mountains and we irrigate our fields with it inefficiently, then that the inefficient part of that water, a little bit of that goes to evaporation, but a lot of it goes to recharging our groundwater. And so it's not inherently a bad thing. The, the concern with that is mostly actually about water quality to the degree that we're irrigating inefficiently, we often end up with nitrate issues because we're leaching so much water, we're losing a lot of that fertilizer, a lot of that manure, a lot of the manure nutrients, they flush out into the groundwater system. And so from a water quality perspective, we have to be efficient in our, in our irrigation. Um, to the degree we have more surface water, then that, that we have that extra surface water that in the past has allowed us to do inefficient irrigation, that is now going away to some degree. But ideally what we would like to see is um, see the inefficient irrigation replaced with efficient irrigation for nutrient management purposes and then add that extra water that we might still have from the mountains during a time of the year to the field um, when we're not growing crops or when we don't have a lot of fertilizer in the soil. Um, so we're not flushing out a ton of nitrate. Um, and so I, I'd like to say we need to replace inefficient irrigation with efficient summer irrigation and winter recharge in the, in the agricultural landscape not to lose that recharge that we did have under inefficient irrigation. So that's one aspect, and that applies specifically to grower that has access to surface water that's coming off of the Sierra Nevada um, or their local mountain range, wherever they are. Another aspect for those that are pumping groundwater is inefficient irrigation just means an extra dollar on the, you know, extra dollars in the pumping because by replacing that inefficient irrigation with efficient irrigation, I now need to pump less water um, to do it, to grow the exact same crop that I grew before um, because I'm not losing a ton of it back to groundwater. Um, and so it makes economic sense to um, engage in efficient irrigation from that perspective. Um, but of course, again, even there are there also, it's very much driven by the fact that from a nutrient management perspective and from a nitrate management perspective, we have to go to efficient irrigation. Um, it, it, it's very difficult to manage nitrate leaching without being efficient uh, with respect to irrigation. Now, uh, to the degree that maybe in some of the regions in the Tulare Lake Basin um, and in some parts of the San Joaquin Valley, these groundwater sustainability agencies are looking at their water budget. As you said, it's an accounting, it's basically an account. It's a, it's a savings account and things get moved in and out of the savings account. In the long term, these plans have to make sure that the savings in the account stay the same. And so the deposits into the savings account have to equal the withdrawals from that savings account. And to the degree that some of these agencies haven't been finding enough water to deposit uh, to meet the current withdrawals, there's there are groundwater sustainability agencies that have said you cannot withdraw as much anymore as you used to. Here's sort of the limit on that, and 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 the, the offset to that would be to find ways to put more to put more water into that savings account, and where 
where growers can contribute to this and including perhaps um, dairy farmers is by allowing for some of these floodwaters that we have um, this winter with the, with, the, with the sequence of atmospheric rivers that have pounded us um, after Christmas and after New Year's. Um, we now have, a, we had floods during those rains, um, capturing some of that, um, infiltrating that into groundwater in a local place uh, with infiltration basins um, is possible, but it's, it's, it limits, it takes time to do that. Um, so when it comes to recharge, perhaps one way to think about it is we can recharge, we can find places, well, let me, let me back up. The, the, the main challenge we face now with recharge is that the only water that we're not already recharging either naturally or through managed aquifer recharge are these flood peaks that we see during extreme rainfall events like the one we had in early January. Um, which also creates a large snowpack that may or may not melt off quickly um, and provides extra water that we could recharge. So fundamentally, the challenge is that the, the main bulk of water that's uncaptured is water that comes very fast and needs to, would need to be recharged very quickly. So we either need to feed, find sites that can take a lot of, that can recharge a lot of water in a short period of time, or we find a lot of places to recharge a little bit of water. And in, in the Central Valley, the agricultural landscape is that place where we have a lot of acreage, where we, where we could do some recharge and in common, you know, you know, across that larger landscape, we could put away a lot of water in a short period of time. Um, just like we do in the summer and you know most of the irrigation is focused on three on three months and we put a lot of water out on that landscape in the summer um, finding ways to do that in the winter with these with these extra flows is is the challenge and participating in programs that um, that allow for farm fields to be used as recharge sites is one way that growers can help there's issues in the dairy specifically that relates to the fact that uh, we are dealing with a lot of manure on dairies. Um, we don't want to do this recharge in places that have a large accumulation of, of nitrate um, or easily mineralizable organic nitrogen in the soil. Um, we really want to focus this on places um, where we have used up the summer's fertilizer uh, that, that it's been used up by the crop and where we can do this safely in the winter. And so um, I'm thinking on a dairy, um, perhaps the most, the most promising place would be uh, a place that's been in alfalfa for several years yeah. um, where some of the surplus nitrogen that is in the soil has been used up by the alfalfa and, and where there should be relatively smaller amounts of leachable nitrate. Um, if, it, if manure hasn't been applied to the alfalfa field, which my understanding is there's typically not much applied. Um, so, but those are some of the things that we're also doing research on, looking at um, the degree to which we may be able to use even a, um, a manure managed field for doing aquifer recharge. Um, but there's, there's a lot of open questions and right now we wanna be cautious and, and, and not flush a whole bunch of nitrate 
into groundwater from some of these intensively manure managed fields. So I would kind of, for the moment, at least until we understand this better, I would stay away from those and focus on areas that haven't received that much manure. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's an issue. Uh, I understand we're actually working uh, on that right now. Um, kind of interested in your research um, because we do need to find areas on dairies that work uh, and we have uh, identified alfalfa crops potentially as one of those uh, ideal places. Um, one of the things we haven't touched on much is the timeline. So we talked about Sigma being adopted in 2014. And I think one of the wise things that was done was uh, there was quite a bit of time that was given to reach sustainability. And that's important because the impacts are so large and this is such a difficult issue to deal with. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, this doesn't have to be done next year. Um, and, and how the drought has impacted that. So there was a timeline written into um, the Sigma legislation, but then we got into the drought and that is changing that timeline. It's bringing those timelines a little you know, faster uh, than we would have expected. Um, and so you kind of got this path to achieving sustainability over time. And you know, how, do we, how do we do that? Uh, and what are sustainability agencies doing uh, with that time frame? And what are the different strategies to, to meet that in the time that is allotted and 2040 uh, is the date for the for some uh, of the areas and I think 2042 for, for others. Yeah, that's correct. So I, that time is going to run up, run, run really fast. What these plants have had to do is they had to sort of set out a timeline in how they want to get to their sustainability goals by 2040 or 2042. And the, the structure of that is that these plants are reviewed every five years or updated every five years. Um, there is annual reporting that needs to be done to the Department of Water Resources and the state will be looking over the shoulders of these groundwater sustainability agencies to make sure that they're meeting their targets that they've set out. And these are five-year targets, 10-year targets and 15-year targets that clearly enable an agency to be at their sustainable level by 2040. The drought has exacerbated the pressure to get to implement some of these projects in a speedy way uh, because um, it, in so many ways we're in a, in a, in a new climate um, and to the degree that agencies may have relied on 20th century climate conditions and groundwater conditions, um, we're seeing much more stress on, from the climate side on our groundwater system. To give you a bit of an idea of how stressed out the groundwater system is now um, as part, as a result of this mega drought, if we, I, I like to say that our groundwater storage reservoir gets refilled at about the same speed as we empty it out. So in a dry year, we, we, we drain that reservoir in an average and wet year, we refill, even in a really wet winter like the one we have now, um, or that we had in 2017, or, uh, or maybe less so in 2019, in these wetter years, all we can make up for in terms of how much storage we recover is one dry year. And so if you look at the 20th century and you look at any 20 or 25 year period um, after uh, the big dust bowl in the early uh, 20th century, there is about an equal number of average and wet years to the number of dry years. 
if you look at the last 22 years, 24 years now, um, the score is eight average and wet years and 16 dry years. And so we're really short about eight years in refilling our groundwater storage reservoirs, especially in, uh, south of the Delta. And that has, that has put extra, extra pressure on the groundwater resources and puts the burden on these local agencies to accelerate um, the measures that they are taking to get to that, to get to, to, to make sure they can actually meet the sustainability goals that they have set out in their plans. Uh, because another way to put it is the meter is very quickly going to these thresholds under the current climate conditions and and we can't go below the thresholds and then try to dig ourselves back out over the next 15 years. We really kind of need to put the brakes on, brakes on sooner uh, rather than later. So we're not in the place where, you know, in, in five or 10 years, we have to throttle this thing down even more so because we're still in a mega drought. Yeah. Kind of long-term uh, looking now, you've talked about reductions in uh, pumping. Um, I assume that that comes from fallowing. We haven't talked much about fallowing. Um, what do you see in 2050, how Sigma is going to affect agriculture uh, in California and specifically the Central Valley uh, and dairy? I mentioned that study showing a 10% reduction in milk production. Um, what do you see kind of in 2050, what does agriculture look like and the economic impact of that um, to the Central Valley uh, and to individual industries and crops, uh, you know, a shift in crops? So maybe some land comes out of production, but do we see a shift in uh, crops due to Sigma? Um, again, we're expecting a 10% reduction in milk production. Um, how, how does that come about in kind of a 2050 scenario? Yeah. I I'm, I'm not the economist and I'm relying on, on a very, very insightful study um, that I had the honor to participate in, the San Joaquin Valley Water Futures Study that was published by the Public Policy Institute of California, PPIC, a few years back. Um, it outlines the potential economic impacts to, this, to the San Joaquin Valley, including the Tulare Lake Basin of Sigma. And it sort of laid out the fact that we have to, at the, at the very least, cut that 2 million acre foot overdraft, which would have to be done by, you know, there, there's some recharge that we can do that will counterbalance some of that, but we'll probably end up with at least a half a million acres of land that needs to be fallowed and used, used another way, whether it, that is... Um, um, dry farming or whether that is solar or whether that is um, natural habitat. Um, um, there, there are some of these options that are outlined in that report, but the fact that that some of this, you know, a not insignificant part of the land needs to come out of production will have some economic impacts. I don't see agriculture in the Central Valley going away. The report outlined that there would be about a 10% reduction in in the um, in the agricultural overall agricultural output and in the labor force um, as a result of sigma, um, but it's not going to be fifty percent or eighty percent. Um, I think we're we're looking at looking at at that um, lower range. It will be a huge adjustment. Uh, there's going to be it's going to be unequal unequally distributed across the San Joaquin Valley. There are going to be communities that are going to be much more impacted than others. 
One of the pieces that the report outlined was that having flexible water markets will, will cushion some of this. Um, we'll see a movement with water markets being created, possibly. We'll see a movement toward higher value crops that can actually afford the more expensive water. It clearly means that water becomes more expensive. Um, and the 10% reduction in the herd size by 2050 seems to be consistent with sort of this overall picture that was outlined in the PPIC report. I think the question that I would have to Dearman and that I do ask Dearman when I meet them is how do you deal with, you know, potentially much higher prices for the water um, um, to the degree that the water allocation to a particular dairy is going to not meet the irrigation needs of a dairy. And um, in the degree to which that then impacts forage production and the cost of that forage and silage to the grower. Um, that's, that's a question I have to, to folks on the other end of this conversation. Yeah. And I think that's going to drive, that's going to be a big driver in, in where the dairy industry is going we do also have to think about from a water quality perspective, you know, distri distributing, being able to, to, to handle the distribution of the manure. Um, there is plenty of, uh, there's plenty of, there will be plenty of acreage um, even in 2050 um, that can receive manure and can benefit from manure. But the big obstacle that we, we have to tackle is find ways we can do that in an economic way. We can distribute the manure that comes from a dairy across much larger land areas than we currently do in order to minimize the impacts on groundwater quality. Yeah, and that's an issue we're already dealing with and Sigma is gonna make worse uh, by taking some of this land out of production. But yeah, there is a lot of land and other crops uh, and we're looking at that, transforming this manure um, you know, into compost or something that can be used on other crops and food crops, or even, uh, you know, uh, natural fertilizers uh, with these nutrients from manure. That's absolutely something we're already working on. And Sigma just uh, makes that even a bigger challenge. Uh, but we're aware of that and we're moving in that direction. Uh, Dr. Harder, I was hoping that we could go back really quick uh, to where you could go a little deeper on land, land subsidence and exactly what happens when um, all of that starts to occur. Yeah. So land subsidence happens because we have um, in the structure of our aquifer system. So if, if you think of our aquifer essentially as a, as a bathtub that's filled with sediments, um, or a flower pot that's filled with soil, the bathtub walls or the flower pot walls are the mountains around us. Um, in the Central Valley, that's the Sierra Nevada on one side and the Coast Range on the other side. Um, if you're in Sonoma Valley, you have you know, mountains on one side and mountains on the other side. In the hard rocks of these mountains, they continue underneath, that, underneath the sediments that, that actually fill these bathtubs. And so in the Central Valley, we have thousands and thousands of feet of sediments. And there, um, some of them are gravels and sands. Um, and then in between, much of it is actually clays and silts. And the clays typically have been deposited at the bottom of a lake 
when there were geologic times where there were lakes at, at the bottom of the valley, or they've been deposited in big floods, um, and and the, you know water sits on the on the land, and and once the water disappears, you're 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 you got thirty, you know, 10, 20, 30 inches of of sediments laying there that are wet, and under historic conditions, these clays often never dried out, and so they get buried. There's more sediments on top, and there is two forces that act on clay particles. And if my fingers are clay particles, there is the overburden of all the sediments that want to squish these clay particles together, right? Um, and then on the other hand, you have water between the clay particles in a water table that might be 500 or 800 or 1,000 feet higher. And that water is under an enormous pressure. And that pressure of the water will try to push these clay particles apart. So in that clay, you have a balance of the overburden wanting to squish it, squish it together and the water pressure wanting to push it apart. When we lower the water table, even 200 or 300 feet above this clay layer, and the pressure in the water between these clay particles gets reduced, then that balance gets shifted and the overburden wins and squishes these clay particles together. And we have tens, if not hundreds of feet of clay in these sediment structures that make up the Central Valley Aquifer system. And so with the lowering of the water table, those clays compress and we can't uncompress them. And as a result, we see land sinking um, at the land surface. There's places in the Central Valley that have now um, sunk by over 30 feet. Um, in the in the last drought and in this drought, there's places where we've seen upwards of two or three or four inches per year of land settlement, and that has in, that has consequences for our infrastructure, and we've had a significant impact, for example, on the um, fried Kern Canal, which has been really hampered by this land subsidence um, to the degree that they cannot deliver. Um, their 100% allocation, I think their allocation is down by a third, if not one half, because essentially there's a large section on along the fine Kern where it kind of sags and you just can't put, you know, as much water through anymore as you used to. Um, and there's other places where similar things happen on a smaller scale, let alone the impacts to, you know, homes and, and streets, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like um, everything that happens underground is so interesting because we can't physically see what's going on. So, Paul, do you have any other questions for Dr. Harder before we wrap this up? Um, no, no additional questions. I look forward to continuing to work with you. Um, yeah, it's probably been 20 years or so that we've been working together. Um, yeah. Really have enjoyed working with you. And uh, did you have anything else you wanted to leave our listeners with on this topic? Um, lots of challenges ahead. I hope we, from the University of California and through Ag and Natural Resources and Cooperative Extension can um, help in that process. And uh, yes, it's been actually wonderful working with Western United Dairymen and I'm looking forward to continue this relationship. Thank you, Dr. Harder. And thank you, Paul, for coming on as well. Thank you for having me. Are you tired of hearing that the main way to save water is fallowing? Are you tired of seeing articles about how alfalfa and corn waste water? At Common Good Water, we combine the best-in-class subsurface drip system and precision crop management services, including pest control. Our verification program qualifies for public funding, 
and we want to help you continue farming in California. Contact your groundwater sustainability agency and ask how you can work with Common Good Water. Visit commongoodwater.com. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Thanks again for listening to Seen and Heard, and thank you again to Dr. Harder for coming on the podcast as well as Paul. A lot of good information there. Uh, If you want a notification when a new episode releases, go ahead and subscribe to the channel. Thank you. Have a good week. Thank you to the Western United Dairy's generous business sponsors, the Morning Star Company, Holt of California, Farm Credit Alliance, PG&E, Arata, Swingle, Van Egmond and Goodwin Law Offices, Yosemite Farm Credit, F&R Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, California Dairy Magazine, Bennett Environmental, and Common Good Water. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our guests, please note that the opinions expressed in the Seen and Heard podcast may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors or our sponsors. If you would like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com.